Jesus. Lord, thank you for uh, our time together, an opportunity to study here uh, your word. I pray, God, you would give us ears to hear, hearts to believe, um, make us pliable, teachable in your hand, um, and God, make us like you uh, as we look for you, God. This is we do this study this morning, as we do every Sunday, uh, to see Jesus and to leave this place uh, enthralled with who he is, with the gospel that has been given to us, and uh, with our eyes open to love and serve and proclaim you to the people around us. And praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, football season is upon us. Is anybody excited about that? No, some people. Some people are excited about football. Okay. I know many of you love football. You love your Colts. I would remind you, it's also baseball uh, playoff push time, um, just in case you didn't know that, by the way. My Dodgers are on fire. Um, Fred, I apologize for beating up on your Braves. Um, we completely slaughtered them, but that's okay. There's always next year, right? That's always the idea. There's always next year. It's whenever, whenever you're in a season and your team maybe is not going to make it or you're looking at it, you always think about what's going to happen next year and you kind of think about uh, all the things that could happen there. Even now, as uh, we think about that, uh, this, this in the last week uh, before the season starts uh, for football, we get to think about what's next for the season, right? Can, uh, can Carson Wentz lead the Colts into the playoffs? Uh, will Frank Reich, Frank Wright unlock the secret that he did before uh, with, uh, with Wentz? You know, will Jonathan Taylor have a sophomore slump? See, I do know some things about the Colts, you know? Um, and as the season rolls on, the questions will continue to be asked about next season, right? And as, uh, if things aren't going well mid-season, you start asking about the questions of like, all right, who's going to get replaced? Uh, what positions do we need to upgrade? What, what draft position do we have? You start watching some college football, potential draft uh, slots there, and what's going on with them. And we do this. We do this as a, as a, as a people. We do it as a culture in many ways. We're obsessed with kind of what is the next thing, uh, and sometimes even take a little cavalier attitude about it. Um, you know, it's, a, uh, it's another Marvel movie that came out. I think I've already seen 12 of those, right? Oh, it's a new Starbucks drink. They made a new one. Um, it's another political firestorm. Shocking, right? It's, uh, we, we just think about all the different things that are up next. I do this probably not in a good way, but I go through the Apple News app and I kind of scroll through and I become numb to the stories, right? You just kind of scroll through. You're like, oh, another war, oh, hmm, another hurricane. You kind of just, what's next? And you just keep moving. You're like, wait a minute, what am I doing? I, I miss the, the weight and significance of each one of these stories, but it feels like there's so much coming at you. You just kind of move on to the, to the next one. The sad thing is that, uh, is that we can do this with spiritual things as well, very easily, uh, we can do this with, with Jesus and the gospel. We can give mental assent to the facts and the importance of those facts and truths. But in the meantime, we kind of subtly look for something else, something's next, something maybe more deeper, something more practical, something more maybe significant. We grow numb to the reality of Jesus and just look for some sort of, some sort of other pick-me-up to, to help out. And this is kind of the attitude that Paul is dealing with when he says, as was just read there, some pretty strong things to the people in Galatia, the Christians in the region of Galatia, modern-day uh, Turkey, if you're wondering where that is, had heard uh, about the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, um, and they were pretty, pretty excited about that idea, and they even committed their lives to Christ, um, and, uh, and their lives were completely transformed. Matter of fact, the churches were planted in Galatia, and as a result, more churches were being planted around, so good things were, were happening to them, but... Years later, here, Paul writes 
to them because they've grown kind of tired of the gospel message. Uh, they've grown tired of Jesus in some way. And what has happened, which may seem strange to you, but this was what was going on, some, maybe we could say, um, nice, tidy religious people started showing up into the church. And they were coming from the Jerusalem area and kind of the, the first churches that were there. And, uh, and they were starting to tell them a different kind of message, twisting the gospel just a little bit subtly. And they began to talk about things like, if you really want to experience joy... Right? If you really, really want to experience what the, the depths of Christianity and the reality of Christianity, if you want to know the secret you know, to, uh, to, to spiritual depths, then you've you got to kind of move on from the elementary things like this gospel thing. Right? I mean, it's important, don't get me wrong, but you need to move on to, to deeper things. And in their words, and what they began to kind of portray to the people of Galatia was that you, know, you really need to start working pretty hard. You need to start uh, getting your act together, addressing a certain way, uh, keeping certain customs to really show God that you know what, you're serious about this thing, right? You're, you're really serious, and so if you really want to see growth and you mean business, then you need to do these things. And if you do, you know, God will really bless you, and God will really love you, and God will really use you, right? It's kind of the, the subtle idea that happens. We call this uh, legalism is what we call it which is seeking to achieve love and acceptance and maybe verification or forgiveness from God through our obedience to God, okay? That's what we call legalism. Um, it is uh, is basically seeing God. I always like to think of it. When I was in L.A., we always had uh, birthday parties. We're always with a pinata. I don't know if you guys do birthday parties here with pinatas, but you always put the pinata, you know what that is? You put it, put it on a rope and you hang it over a tree and you get a stick and you blindfold them and then you get out of the way, Right? And if you're really having a lot of fun, you pull it up and down so they miss it constantly, right? But, but in some ways, this is, this is how people can start to view God. God's like a pinata. Your good works are like a stick. And you just beat him <laughs> with that stick of good works until he yields the good stuff, right? Until he yields the blessings, until he shows, okay, look at all this stuff I've done, God, all these works I've done, these prayers I've prayed, my attendance, um, my giving, my helping, my serving. Okay, now you, you owe me, right? You owe me kind of idea, and so, and so we, we may think that, uh, that you don't consider such things as a Christian, uh, but don't, don't deceive yourself on this. We can all fall, fall trapped to this. Um, you know you're believing this, and I'll give you some examples of how you know you're believing this kind of thing, is when things don't go quite the way that you expected them to go, and you kind of get upset with God. And you're like, you know what, seriously, another thing? And, and, and you, it may be an, an unconscious thought, maybe not a conscious thought, or maybe you don't verbalize it, but suddenly you kind of think to yourself like, I deserve better than this. Like, look at all the time I've given to God. Look at all the things I've done for God. And I get this as a result. You see, that's, a, that's that works-based kind of relationship with God. I, I've done certain things. He owes me a good life. Um, it's like the Jesus of the Western world slowly merges with the images of a Santa Claus, all right, who's making a list and checking it twice and going to find out who's naughty or nice and who's going to get the gifts and who's not, Right? Uh, Jesus isn't Santa Claus, guys. And spoiler alert, Santa Claus isn't real. But anyway, um, you know, but I mean, that's what we do. That's why it kind of it starts merging together. Sorry if I just ruined someone's dreams there. Um, you're like 75. You're like, what? Um, <laughs> we can do this another way, by, uh, by subtly moving on from the person of Jesus, okay? Um, uh, to, from the person of Jesus to the work we need to do for Jesus. It's a very subtle thing we can begin to do. We can start off with the good intentions of like, yeah, I love Jesus, I wanna, I wanna serve him, I wanna make him known, but slowly we start relying on those things to give us a good standing with God. You see, it slowly begins to happen. And this is where we turn good things 
into ultimate things or priority things. We devote our energy and our time to fighting things, right? I mean, we, it, it takes a lot of energy. You're fighting lust, you're battling pride, you're, you're seeking to kill greed, you're trying to cultivate patience in your relationships, all, all very good things to be doing. Meanwhile, your relationship with Jesus becomes a kind of distant thought because all of your devotions to all the things I need to do to fix myself, right? Um, and we kind of move on to what is next. So because these things become ends in themselves and not Jesus, then what happens in our life is it becomes pretty, pretty joyless. Uh, we stop making much progress in our walk with Jesus. And when we do sin, when we do fail people, when we do, uh, do those things, it's, it's hard to get off the floor then, right? Because so much devotion has been given to being good and being right and fixing things in my life. And I've made so much progress and it's like the, the AA chip. You know, I've got this thing for three years, I'm sober, and you lose it. And it's like, oh, i got to start all over again with God. You know, I mean, that's slowly what we begin to do as a Christian. We begin to think, like, how could I ever be forgiven? I mean, how is God ever going to use me, you know? How is it ever going to have progress? I gotta, I've done all this work for three years, and I failed, and now i got to start all over again. And that's not how it works with God. And so, and, and so this begins to happen. Slowly Christianity becomes just a, a form of moralism, a place where the grace of God is nullified, a place where, uh, where it's no longer, uh, grace is no longer needed instead of one where we no longer live, but Christ lives in us, a life we live by the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. That's, that's what Paul just talked about in the previous passage that Justin preached last week. So how do, we, how do we keep from moving on from the cross? How do we keep from forgetting the gospel? How do we uh, not replace moralism with, you know, with, with a love for Jesus? How do we really grow as Christians? How do we live out what the end of Galatians 2 told us to do? What does that look like? And we're going to find in this passage, it's actually very, it's going to be very theological. This is a Trinitarian in nature. We're going to look at Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and this is what our outline is going to be. We need to remember the work of Jesus, okay, dying for us. We need to rely on the work of the Spirit in dwelling us, and then we need to recognize the work of the Father in giving to us. All right, so number one, remember the work of Jesus dying here, verse one. So Paul has just finished talking about, uh, in this previous section of chapter two, he had talked about his confrontation with Peter. Peter was beginning to exclude himself uh, from the Gentile Christians. Peter was Jewish, by the way, and he was with these Gentile Christians, and Jewish Christians show up, and he decides to leave his Gentile Christians to join them, very junior high, lunch table-esque. And, uh, and because there was a, these group of, of religious Jewish people showed up, and they felt, in their opinion, that the Gentiles, even though they were Christians, were unclean, right? They weren't acceptable. They, they did things that just weren't quite right. Um, they claimed uh, the name of Christ, this group of Jewish people did, and even Peter and Barnabas, it says in the text, were persuaded. And this, uh, this group felt that justification uh, couldn't be just faith alone, but, it, it, but, but that, that would leave, if that was the case, if justification, being declared right with God, getting into a relationship with God was sheerly on faith, that's all it was, um, then, then that's going to leave, I mean, the people are going to act crazy, Right? They're going to be a bunch of hellions. They're going to go nuts. They're going to live like they want to. Right? We, it can't be just grace. It has to be some other binding characteristic so that you, know, you have some control. And so Christians kind of live a certain way. And so that's what they, they kind of believed. They felt that you needed Jesus plus things like a good reputation to be you know, really varsity Christians if you want to go all in. And that reputation came from separating themselves from sinners like these Gentiles. Right? We need to separate from them because they're not quite good enough. And so Paul, Paul saw this, he confronts Peter, uh, and didn't, he didn't tell him, as we looked at already earlier in chapter 2, he didn't tell him, like, 
you know, Paul, you're, you're, you're being partial, or Paul, you're breaking the rules, or Paul, you're being racist, and all those things. He didn't say that particularly. He actually told him that he was failing to believe the gospel was why he was acting the way he was. He was failing to walk in step with the truth of the gospel up here in uh, 211 through 14. And so he, he was forgetting those things. And so, uh, so Paul begins to, uh, to, to set him straight here. Uh, so Paul explains the doctrine of justification by faith alone to Peter once again. Why? You're saying, does Peter get saved again? No, that's not the case. He needs to remember that he's justified, declared right by God through faith alone, by grace alone, not through works. And you're like, I know that, but mm, we need to hear that too, don't we? We need to hear it over and over and over again because we forget. We, we tend to want to move on to what's next. And so after he kind of sets Peter straight, he turns to his readers at the end of chapter 2 and begins to, uh, to talk to them. They no doubt maybe were concerned over Paul's actions. Like, how could you kind of confront Peter over this? I mean, what did, what did Peter really do wrong? He was only obeying you know, the law, the Old Testament law laid out there. He was trying to be holy. He was separating themselves from these people. But the problem was that Peter was trying to be holy for holiness' sake, right? For, for other people's sake, not for Jesus' sake. And so Paul tells these Galatian Christians that they've inverted the gospel in believing this. They are saying they are justified by faith, but they're living like they're justified by people's opinions. And so Paul argues that it is the grace, that it's the gospel that actually motivates much more than any law ever could. Transformation happens by focusing on grace, not law. Paul tells them that the gospel we possess, in, in the gospel we possess the righteousness of Jesus, so we don't need to perform to be made right with God, to be loved by God, to be accepted by God. As a matter of fact, to try and do so and add anything to the work of Jesus, as Paul would say here at the end of chapter 2, is really to nullify the grace of God, to make a mockery of the cross. Um, that's what uh, Justin preached on last week. So people didn't like, people don't usually like justification by faith alone, because the problem with justification by faith alone with God is it leaves us out of the picture. We don't, we don't contribute anything. We really want to. We want, we want some credit here of the things that we have done. Um, they think that there's, there's, there has to be something that we have to do. God can't just accept us, right? I mean, he has to, he has to kind of clean us up, kind of do some things for us, to us before, before we can actually be of service to him, right? Um, I think about, you know, when I catch a fish, which, by the way, I have done. I do catch, I've caught fish. Um, and uh, I'm, I don't know if Mike Ray's here, but he made fun of me because I caught him and I had a glove and I would like take him off the hook with my glove because I ain't touching those things with my bare hand. But anyway, um, you know, you catch a fish, you know, you, you, don't, you don't usually go all golem and on them if you don't know what that means. That's a Lord of the Rings reference and just like eat the fish after you catch him. Like you, you usually clean them up, right? You clean them up, you cook them, you kind of do that whole thing, make them presentable. And you're like, okay, now I can eat this. And sometimes we think of that with God. Like God catches us and we're like, whoa, we're stinky fish, like we, he needs to clean us up. He needs to do some things for us before we can actually be of service to him. And what Paul is arguing is like, no, it, he, he can use you immediately in this way. Um, and so it, it, there's, God must want to clean us up before he uses us. So we need to get to work, to get our act together for him in order for him to be okay. But Paul says the following. Verse 1, he says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? His statement, by the way, is not a compliment. Um, they should know better is the idea. They've been taught better than this. Uh, he tells them that they're being fools. And literally, the idea is a, a senseless beast. And I love the word O, just right, the very first little letter there, O, foolish Galatians. It has the sound of teenage angst. You know what that is? If you don't know what that is, it's oh, that one. That's, that's what, I mean, that's what Paul's doing here. He's like, oh, 
foolish Galatians. I mean, that's, that's the idea of the word. It's like, what are, you, what are you guys thinking? I mean, literally the word is like, you, you've lost it. Like, you're dumb is the idea. I mean, it's, I always think of, when I think of this phrase, he calls them foolish, I think of um, what Lucy always called Charlie Brown. This dates me a little bit, if you guys remember this. Remember what Lucy would always call uh, Charlie Brown? A blockhead, right? You blockhead. That's, that's basically what he's calling the Galatians. You guys are a bunch of blockheads here. Like, you have totally missed the whole thing. Ah, blockheads. That's basically a translation, if you want a modern translation of that. It's not endearing. Let's put it that way. He's not excited. And he says here they have been bewitched. <laughs> the idea is that there's a spell been put on, on somebody kind of idea, or even the idea of the language is it, it's a little strange for the, for the English, but it's the idea of giving someone the evil eye. Um, and it's, uh, it's the idea, it carries an idea of envy to it, this, the word does. And so the picture is that these false teachers or these, or these false people who are claiming Christ come into the picture and they've kind of cast this, this evil eye and, and looks really disappointed in these, Galatia, in these uh, Galatian Gentile Christians. They're like, oh, you guys are so disappointing. You, you call yourselves Christians, but you're not, really, you're not really Christians here. You're not really doing the things that God wants you to do kind of thing. And so they're showing this kind of... Um, disappointment to them, that they're not following the law as they, as they are. And that's their, they, they come in showing off their, their law keeping, and, and then the ironic thing becomes happens is the church becomes kind of envious. That's what Paul happened, and it happened to Paul, happened to Barnabas. They're like, oh man, they, they, uh, they, they look really good, you know? I mean, they, they look at them, and they're like, they, they have all these things together. They dress nice, they look like they have it all together, and we're just like, you know, stinking fish that God just called out of the lake, you know? It's like, we need some work here. We need to clean ourselves up. And, uh, and so why, why would that be desirable to them? Why are they appealed by, uh, appealing, uh, why is that appealing? Because there's a great amount of false security in law-keeping, in looking good to others, in feeling superior to others, right? There's a, there's a false sense of security in that, like, I'm better because of this and that, I'm following these rules and those rules, and I, I present myself better to God. But if you read the New Testament, you look, we run across these guys called Pharisees, uh, you find out that it didn't work out too well, right? Look at that, they were pretty miserable people uh, in, in trying, to, trying to obtain this law-keeping lifestyle, and something just wasn't right. I mean, they, may, they might look good on the outside, but inside, they're miserable. As, as Jesus would tell them, their in, inside's full of, looks like a good tomb on the outside, inside full of dead men's bones. Paul says, you're not excited about Jesus anymore. That's what he's telling the Galatians. You're, you're excited about these people that have come into town. You're not excited about what Jesus did on the cross. You're excited about what, what you can do to remedy your own condition and to make yourself more appealing. You're not trusting in Christ anymore. You're trusting in yourself. You've walked away from justification by faith alone to justification by the opinions of others. And so notice Paul uses a singular phrase here when he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who, singular, is referring to, no doubt, in the, at least in the background here, is Satan, who is no doubt active in the church. He's active in religious circles, right? Sometimes you think Satan's involved in the non-religious circles. Like, no, he's really good at being involved in religious circles. Um, as a matter of fact, Paul would say this, was concerned about this very thing, not just for the Galatians, but for the church in Corinth. Look what he says, 2 Corinthians 11, 3, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve, as a reference to Satan, uh, by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And uh, in C.S. Lewis's a book, uh, The Screwtape Letters, if you've not read that, it is, a, it is a kind of an idea of a book of, uh, of a, what Lewis is writing about is the idea of uh, what would it be like for a, demons to mentor demons on how to tempt humanity. And so the book is written in a way of like a mentor demon 
have his protege teaching him how, how to go about tenting humanity. Fascinating kind of read and what happens there. And here's part of that, um, the, an excerpt from that book. This is Wormwood, he's the mentor speaking to his protege. And he says this, whenever they, speak of Christians, are attempting to the enemy, that would be God, uh, himself, we are defeated. So when they're focused on him, we're not, we're not doing our job. He says, uh, he goes on and says, but there are, there are ways of preventing them from doing so. The simplest is to turn their gaze away from him and towards themselves. Keep them watching their own minds and trying to produce feelings there by the action of their own will. In other words, just make them get really religious. Just make them really focus on just being good people and get their eyes off Jesus, and we got them. <laughs> and so he's very active in that world. So Paul goes on. He says, um, who has bewitched you? Before your eyes, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, I read that, and I thought, that's, that's a fascinating statement. And I like, hold on. You may not know the geography of all this, so let me help you out here. How far is Jerusalem from, this is modern-day Turkey. You can just think about that in your mind. That's not... It's not a neighborhood, all right? It's not right around the corner. It's a little bit of a distance, over 600 miles. How long ago, from the time this was written, was Jesus actually crucified? Probably a good 20 years, at least. Then, then how could Paul say that they clearly, graphically, vividly saw Jesus portrayed as crucified? What is he talking about? They, they weren't actually at the cross. Most of these people, maybe all of them, were not physically there to see that. What is he talking about? He's talking about when they came to Christ, they saw the cross. When they came to Jesus, they saw the cross through the preaching of the gospel. That's why in the book of Ephesians, Paul would write, he says, we have the eyes of our heart enlightened. They're opened. They see for the first time that you may know what is the hope to which you have been called. When you come to Jesus, when you come to the God, you understand the gospel, you, you in a way see the cross. You understand the nature of it. It's not just a story. It's a real story, and it's something that affects you, Right? Have you seen Jesus on the cross? Did you hear the agony of his cries? Did you see the blood-stained ground beneath him? Did you smell the smell of death at the cross? That's, that's when the gospel hits you. That's the depth to which it goes. It's like an old hymn. It was sung by African slaves in America in the 19th century. It was published in a, a book called Old Plantation Hymns. It was a song, maybe you heard it before, Were You There When They Crucified My Lord, Right? That's the idea. Were you there? Did you, did you see that? When you came to Christ, you came to understand the gospel, do you understand the depths to it? It wasn't just mental ascent to facts. It has something that affected you deeply. So has the gospel really broke into your life? Has it hit you? Has it converted you? And it's one thing to know the Lord. It's another, the Bible says, to taste and see the Lord is good, right? That's a deeper, deeper thing. At some point, Jesus becomes beautiful to you and you're converted and Christian, you've got to go back to the cross every day. You've got to go back to remembering what Jesus did for us. This is why we do communion every Sunday. And I still got to ask that question. Why do we do it every Sunday? So that we remember Jesus. <laughs> that we remember why we're here and what the point is of being here is not to, to give some tidbits and improvements on our life and help us out. It's to see Jesus. It's to worship him and be transformed by his, his grace. Number two, rely on the work of the Spirit in dwelling. So verse two says, let me ask you only this. So here's Paul. He says, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, when you were converted and you came to Jesus and your life was transformed and you were filled with joy inexpressible, was that because you thought you were a really good person? No, I don't think so. Was it because you felt you, you finally cleaned yourself up enough to make yourself acceptable to God? No, that's not the answer either. The obvious answer is that the Spirit of God 
came to you when you first believed and when you were all broken, like he came to you then. Like you didn't clean yourself up to be presentable to God. Paul says we receive the spirit, which is not the idea of us choosing something like a, like a pair of jeans or toppings on your yogurt, but rather the idea of being graciously given something that we don't deserve. We were graciously given the spirit of God. The spirit is a gift, not a reward. That God doesn't give the spirit like a medal or a plaque, you know? It's like, oh, you've earned him. Here you go. Um, he gives the spirit as a gift. People want a, a method. I mean, if I, if I put in this much energy and work, I will receive this result as if Jesus in the gospel is some kind of set of dumbbells or a paycheck. Like, it doesn't work that way. Jesus is, not, Jesus is not a mechanism. He's not into matching grants here. He works by grace alone. The only way to know him is to enter into a trusting relationship with him. Right? We don't earn grace, and we certainly don't earn more of the Spirit by being, by being good people. Many Christians, there's, there's, there's certain parts of Christianity that hold to the idea that you can get more of the Spirit by the things that you do. I believe if you go through certain rituals, if you do enough begging of God, um, if you go through enough uh, prayers and badger him enough with that, he'll give you another portion of the Spirit. But if, my friends, if you are a Christian, if you've come to Christ, you've got the full portion of the Spirit. It's not another level. It's not a varsity Christianity, a JV Christianity. Like, you're all in at the very beginning. Paul would say this in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Right? It's, just, it's all in or it's all or, all or nothing. So it's ludicrous to maintain that the full gift of the Holy Spirit comes to an additional work or experience. The full indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is inseparable from new birth. At no time before salvation can a person have the Holy Spirit indwelling them, and at no time after salvation can a person not have the Spirit of God indwelling them. The Holy Spirit's not a cherry on top, right? He's not the goal of the Christian life. He's the source. He's not the product of faithful living. He's the power of faithful living, okay? So look at verse 3. Are you so foolish? Paul's still continuing to kind of twist the knife here. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Paul basically says to them, you, are, are you guys lost it here? You, you were following Jesus. You were, I, I know I was there. I saw this. You were trusting him. You were leaning on the Spirit when all of a sudden something clicked in you. Like you, you got arrogant. You started thinking that maybe you were better than you really were. And so you put together this this manual where you kind of ripped out verses out of context, started thinking you could earn favor with God on your own, and you must be on a pretty high horse to think you don't need grace anymore, that you don't need the Spirit anymore, that you need to move on to something else or something better, something deeper. It's like they're treating the Holy Spirit uh, as training wheels on a bike. It's like, we're glad you, we have them. This is good. It gets us going in the Christian life. Um, but now, you know, they get, they get a little full of themselves, and they're like, you know what, don't you take those off. We got this. We don't need the Holy Spirit anymore. And they go like five yards, you know, and start to wobble. And Paul's like, I told you, you know, all they fall over. We need the Holy Spirit before and after we come to Christ, right? We, there does not exist a moment in our walk with God where we don't need him. Paul goes on, verse four. Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? Paul is simply saying for so long, you've rejoiced in Christ, you relied on the Spirit, you've taken a lot of mockery for this. It hasn't been easy to do this. Are you just going to throw in the towel? Are you just going to succumb to the pressure of religious expectations and be like, I'm just going to conform to these standards and I'm going to leave Jesus behind? You'll be tempted in your Christian life to hop on the latest whatever Christian fad is out there because there are those. They, they pop up all the time. The latest self-help book in some fashion. The latest be like Jesus in 30 seconds or less or your money back you know, kind of thing. Um, 
You'll be tempted to want to jump through whatever hoop someone else did that worked for them, right? Oh, this worked for me. You should try it, you know. And um, what you need to do is rely upon the Spirit of God, not try to go after whatever is the latest, greatest methods. The Holy Spirit is the only one who's going to make you like Jesus. Why? Because he's the only one that reveals Jesus. Paul t- I mean, Jesus told us that in the Gospel of John, 14 through 16. His job, I'm going to send you the Spirit, the Spirit comes, he's going to show you me, all right? Um, He's always, uh, Philippians 1, 6 speaks of the God continuing to work in us. I'm sure of this. He says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion to the day of Jesus Christ. So the question becomes, as they'll ask, as the book of Romans asks the same thing, so, so what do we do? <laughs> so we just sit back, you know, relax on the couch, eat some chips, flip through the remote. Um, what, what do I do? No care in the world at all? No, the, the point is that Paul is making the vision of the, the cross and now the promised work and presence of the Holy Spirit in our life should motivate us to want to do what we can to make much of Jesus. It's out of grace. It's motivated out of grace and gratitude. The difference is now is that I don't work to earn favor with God. I, I work because I already have favor with God by grace. I don't strive to obtain love of God. I strive because I have been loved by God. I don't seek for Jesus because he needs to be found by me. I seek Jesus because he already found me. They sound very similar, but those are radically different. It all has to do with the motivation of the heart, which is what Paul was going after. This is why Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only my presence, but much more my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, which would sound very like, oh, okay, I gotta get to work. But look what he says. For it's God who works in you, but to willing to work for his good pleasure. He, he's operating, he's working. Listen, forgetting the gospel, missing that the Spirit's job is to show us Jesus, moving from a grace-based relationship with God to a works-based relationship with God has been a struggle for every generation of Christians. It's always a struggle for us. This is always applicable. Um, if you go back, all the way back to like the fifth century, I'll give you a little bit of history here. It was a guy named Pelagius. He arrived in Rome it was a fairly new kind of, um, Christianity was fairly new in Rome, so it was a big kind of revival, you could call it, in, the, in, the, in Rome during that time, the 5th century. And Pelagius shows up and basically says, you guys aren't living good enough. He starts to uh, lambast immorality, he starts to issue a, a call to Christians to live righteous and pure lives. And he would get a lot of amens, you know, even today's uh, idea, but it's this guy named Augustine showed up and confronted him on, uh, on, and fought for the gospel of grace. Pelagius had fundamentally misunderstood the nature of God in the gospel. He was teaching that the real problem for us was that we had done wrong things, and if we wanted to enter heaven, we need to do right things. Now, you can say you're a Christian and you believe the gospel all you want, but you've got you to fix yourself here. You've got to fix yourself up. And so for him, the aim of the Christian life was not, had nothing to do with enjoying God or loving God, but to use God in many ways uh, as the one who sells us heaven for the price of being moral, upstanding people. So Augustine came along and said that we're, we're not created simply to live under God's moral code. That's what Pelagius was saying. Our reason God made us was to live under his moral code. That's the goal. That's the reason. He says, no, we were made to rest and, and have satisfaction in Jesus who the Spirit reveals to us. He says, when we miss this, when we forget this, Augustine talks about, we turn inward on ourselves and look for some sort, search for some sort of spiritual vitality in ourselves and some kind of worth in ourselves, right? It becomes very inward focused. Michael Reeves, in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, which we have over there in the bookstore, we as pastors have been reading this book, he makes the following observation about this, about Augustine's arguments with Pelagius. He said this, our problem is not so much that we have behaved wrongly, 
but that we have been drawn to love wrongly. That has everything to do with the heart. He said a little over a thousand years later, Martin Luther would, uh, picked up Augustine's line of thought to define the sinner as the person curved in on himself, no longer outgoingly loving like God, no longer looking to God, but inwardly looking, self-obsessed, devilish. Such a person might well behave morally and righteously, religiously, but all they, would, all, all they did would simply express their fundamental love for themselves. They look, they look right. They look good. They look moral. They're doing the right things. But really, it's all about them. It's not about Jesus. And that's what's going on with Gal- in, the, in Galatia here in our text and in Christianity today. The expression of religion today is predominantly an expression of fundamental love for ourselves rather than a love for Jesus who the Spirit gave us to reveal him. Lastly, number three. Recognize the work of the Father, giving. Verse 5 says, he, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So Paul asks another thought-provoking question here. Does God the Father work in you and among you because you're good people? Or is it because of grace through faith? So every, and what Paul is saying is basically understand, listen, every good thing that's ever happened to us, in us, through us, for us, or even despite us, <laughs> is because God is good. We can't take any credit for any of it. You know, we're not better than anyone else. We have all, as the Bible says, fallen short. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so Jesus tried to teach us to his disciples, even as a Christian, it's not like you, you enter in and become this, this outstanding person all of a sudden, right? This is God, God work in you. Listen to Luke 6. This is Jesus talking to his disciples and see if you can pick this up, the language and kind of the subtle jab here that he makes to his own disciples. He says, and, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love, them, who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those who, uh, from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to give back the same amount. So, but love your enemies, do good. Lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Who's the ungrateful and the evil? His disciples. <laughs> that's, the, that's the language he is referring to them as. It goes on, Luke 11, he says, he says this, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will indeed, uh, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then... Speaking to his disciples, who are evil, <laughs> know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is Jesus talking to his disciples. This is us, sinners, ungrateful, and evil. We don't like that. We like to think we're better than we really are, but we're not. If there's any change in us, it is a product of the grace of God. When Jesus saves us, it's not like he makes us into people who are now capable on our own to love and cherish him. Just as salvation is by grace so is sanctification by grace. Becoming like Jesus is by grace. That's why the quality God is looking for, you know what God is looking for when he's, when he's looking for in us is humility, not capability. Okay, that's encouraging. It should be encouraging. So when you come to Jesus, you can think like, man, that guy, he's been walking with Jesus for 40 years. I'm never gonna get there. It's like, no, God is looking for humility, not capability here. Do you embrace the fact that you don't, you don't have it all together? Good. That's exactly what God is looking for. And that's good because we can all attain that, right? There's no hoops to jump through to get there. Yeah, I'm not good. Okay, I can work with that. Listen, uh, Isaiah 66, verse 2. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit trembles at my word. 
Jeremiah 9, 23, 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this. So if he wants to be proud about something, he understands and knows me. <laughs> that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness on earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. In the New Testament, in the book of Corinthians, Paul would write this, chapter 1, verse 29. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So if you're going to make strides in relationship with Jesus, you can't forget, my friends, that God is the giver of all good things. He works in you, not because of you, but in spite of you. <laughs> you know, we need that, that good slice of humble pie, right? We need that. And the, and the best slice of humble pie we get is actually why, why God gives us this. It's called a Bible, all right? This is why he gives it to us, to reveal him to us, not so that we can find out how good we are, okay? That's not the goal of the Bible. It's only those who approach Scripture with humility and teachability and ownership of their own inability are those who are going to actually see Jesus in the text, and not themselves, right? So listen to what he says, and this is where Paul goes. He goes to the Bible, look at verse six. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it's not those of faith who are sons, know that it is those, sorry, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Now why does Paul revert to this Old Testament? Why is he going back to, you know, Father Abraham who had many sons? Many sons had Father Abraham, sorry. I always got to say that. Apparently, the false teachers um, in this place, were, were, they were holding out Abraham as the model for them. Like, you guys, we're like Abraham. That's what they're saying. Like, we're, we're Jewish, like Abraham was Jewish. We keep the law of Moses like Abraham did. Um, if you're tracking with this one, you're going to find out there's some really wrong facts about this. Um, you know, we're, we're doing all the things that Abraham did, so we are, we are Abraham's children, you are not. So they reached as him as an example. If you want to be godly, if you want to receive, uh, achieve points with God, you need to be like Abraham, you need to be like us. He was a righteous man, a Jewish man, an overall good guy, and that's why God used him, and God will use you too if you get your act together. It's basically what they were doing, what they were saying. And so to them, Abraham was the guy, right? He was a friend of God, a hero of the faith. Even in their writings, Jewish writings, this is from uh, an excerpt from a book called First Maccabees, which is not in the Bible, uh, but it's part of the Jewish, Jewish writings. It said this, Abraham proved steadfast under trial and so gained credit as a righteous man. That's what they believed. He gained credit with God by being a righteous person. Um, and they said there was three things about Abraham that made him righteous, that made them therefore righteous. They said Abraham, number one, he was, he was Jewish. Number two, he was circumcised. Number three, he obeyed the Old Testament law given by Moses. A couple problems with that one. If you're tracking, if you know your Bible at all, you're tracking with this. This is what they said. I'm just saying, this is a problem. First of all, Abe wasn't even Jewish. Let's start there. There were no Jewish people yet, Okay. Um, we first find Abraham in the Bible in Genesis you know, 12, you find him in there. He's actually worshiping planets and animals, okay? Um, and, uh, and there was no circumcision either. Um, all the, the Jewish people were like, you Gentiles need to, you know, in, in Galatia here, you need to be like this if you want to be close to Jesus, right? You need to be circumcised. And I told you before, the Gentiles were probably like, hey, we, we love Jesus, um, but we're not so into that one. I don't know if we really want to go that way. Uh, we voted on it. It took two seconds. It was unanimous. No, we're not doing it. Um, and they, but they're like, Abraham was like, well, Abraham wasn't until like 14 years later. Like, it wasn't like that's how we got into a relationship with God. That was a means of, of, of actually talking about them separated as a people. And, did, did, and then you go about the whole uh, moral law. Did Abraham obey the moral laws of the Old Testament given by Moses? Did they exist yet? <laughs> 
Had Moses even been born yet? How long was it between? It was like 500 years until Moses comes along. Now, that's a really good argument, buddy. Like, that's really good. No, he, he really obeyed the Mosaic law. It didn't come for 500 years later. So Paul is, and this is why he's asking and sort of making some mockery of questions. Like, we, if you were, let's go back to Abraham then. You want to you use him as a model of that's what we need to be like in order to be right with God and to have God, you know, use us and be good with us? Let's go back and talk about how he had a relationship with God. And that's what he does. And so Paul says that God didn't use Abraham because he was great. He used him because he humbly believed God could do what he could not do. As a result, Abraham didn't work to be righteous. He became righteous before God based on faith alone, just like we do today. Abraham, just like us, was a righteous man, not because he was actually righteous, but because he was given Jesus' righteousness. Right? Trusting God's like opening a bank account. Immediately God transferred his righteousness into Abraham's account imputed his righteousness to Abraham. This, is, this all happened to Abraham, by the way, before he did really anything. Go read Genesis 12. Bottom line, Paul wants to show them that he's not making this stuff up. You want to pull Abraham? Sure, I'll, I'll go there. I'll go there with you. God always taught that we were both saved and sanctified by grace alone, through faith alone. It's always been the same. They looked forward, we look back, right? It's still the same idea. The Father's always the giver. We're always the receiver. It's always the way it is. And this is why we have to go back to the Bible and constantly see grace on every page because the Bible is not about us. You've heard me say this a million times. It's not about us and what we need to do for God. It's about Jesus and what he came to do for us. And until you really get that, you'll never, get the, you'll never see Jesus in, in the Bible. You'll just see yourself or lack thereof. So he goes on, verse 8. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul is saying here that the gospel, the truth of a savior, the truth about Jesus was proclaimed to Abraham. He was saved just like we are today, sanctified just like we are, by grace, through faith alone. That's why Jesus would say this, and they made, he made the religious people really angry when he said this. John 8, 56, your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he, that he would see my day. He saw it, and he was glad. Oh, Abraham saw Jesus? Like, that was a long time ago. Yeah, he looked forward to him coming. But who told, if you look at the passage closely here in Galatians, who told Abraham the gospel? Who saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles? Paul uses a very interesting phase, a phrase. You would think he would say God did that, but he actually says scripture. Look back at your Bible there. That's what it says, verse eight. The scripture foreseeing that God would, and he goes on. It was the scripture that told that. It's the scripture that is powerful. It's the Bible that is a gracious gift to us from the Father. It's what the word of God says is what it was what God says himself, right? It is the inspired, uh, infallible, and errant word of God. You might say, well, I've read parts of the Bible, and some parts I just don't understand, Chris. I mean, I, I mean some parts, actually, I, I, they totally offend me. Um, and that's good. It should offend you. <laughs> uh, welcome to the party, right? That's, that, that's the way it does for all of us. I always say the Bible is an equal opportunity offender. It offends everybody, okay, at some point. Uh, if you're not offended by it, you probably don't get the Bible, okay? You probably haven't seen it for what it actually says, and so uh, it offends everybody of every background. And, and this is part of God's gracious gift to us, right? The very offense of it is part of the gift. You're like, really? Like, this is like a gift. I don't know, it's like my, I have a friend who I bowl with, one of my, buddy, my bowling buddies, who loves hot sauce, loves hot sauce, like hot, hot sauce. Like the youth group, you know, we did the youth group thing here where they had a hot sauce. He'll take it, eat it, tear up, walk around the room, like drink tons of water, like, and they'll go, oh, man, that's so good. I'm like, What? 
Like, why is that so good? He's like, oh man, the burn of it is just the best part. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's like the Bible. Like, the best part is the burn. Like, the best part is like, you're offended by it. And that's what it should. I mean, that's the way, that's way it should be in that way. Because it's revealing to us who we are, and we need to see that. And so, and Paul says, if we want to grow in your walk with Jesus, stop and listen to Scripture, speak about him. It's a gracious gift from the Father to us. That's why Hebrews 4.12 says, the word of God is living and active. It's alive. And it's sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, designing, uh, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's why Jesus would say in John 5.39, the religious people who knew the Bible pretty well, they could memorize most of it, but they didn't know it because they only saw themselves in it. It was a mirror they put up to themselves. They only saw them. They didn't see Jesus. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. In other words, you think that if you obey the rules, you follow the standards, you maybe emulate the, emulate the good character of the heroes of the Bible and you avoid the bad character of the villains, then you're good. And Jesus goes, but it's they that bear witness about me. It's not about that, it's about me. Like it's, it's supposed to show you me. This is why we always say, like every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's the missing piece of the puzzle, the piece that makes all of the other pieces fit together and you finally see the whole picture. Finally make, the Bible finally starts to make sense when you see Jesus. That's why we open the Bible. We don't do it out of religious duty. We don't do it in an attempt to earn God's favor. We don't do it as a, a moral self-help guide or manual of handy tips for good lives. If you open the Bible for those purposes, you will be perplexed. You know why? Because if you actually read it, You'll look at it and go like, there's a list of names here. How do I emulate this? <laughs> it's genealogy. There's instructions about temples and descriptions of priests. Like, I don't understand. Like, this seems so foreign to me. This doesn't make any sense. How do I practice that? Because it's not about you. <laughs> it's not about you and what you need to do for God. It's about Jesus and what he came to do for you. Until you see Jesus at the point, you won't see it. You'll just see black words on white paper. It'd be totally confusing. Michael Reeves, again, in that book we were talking about earlier, said this. He says, when you see that Christ is the subject of all the scriptures, that he is the word, the Lord, the son who reveals his father, the promised hope, the true temple, the true sacrifice, the great high priest, the ultimate king, then you can read, not so much asking, quote, what does this mean for me right now, but what do I learn here of Christ? Knowing that the Bible is about him and not me means that instead of reading the Bible obsessing about me, I can gaze on him. And as through the pages you get caught up in the wonder of his story, you find your heart strangely pounding for him in a way you never would have if you had treated the Bible as a book about you. My friend, Satan is having a field day in this city of Galatia, in this church of Galatia, and he's having it today because so much of Christianity has been inverted into what does it mean for me? And what does it do? What, what am I supposed to be doing? As opposed to being about Jesus. And it's so easy, every generation of Christians, to move beyond and say, what's next? Okay, but yeah, Jesus, sure, down across, sure. Yeah, gospel, grace thing, sure. But now what do I need to do? As opposed to seeing, staying focused on that. I'll leave you with, with the words here of Charles Spurgeon's old pastor over in, in the 19th century in England. He said this, it is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self to Jesus. But Satan's work is just the opposite of this. For he is constantly trying to make us regard ourselves instead of Christ. We shall never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doings, or our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. If we would at once overcome Satan and have peace with God, it must be by looking unto Jesus. 
So we go to communion to do what? To look unto Jesus, okay? We take communion, bread and juice. Jesus instructed us to do this, to remember him. So that every time we gather on Sunday, the goal here as we leave is to remember Jesus. Why? Because that's gonna transform you. It is. That, that, that's, gonna, that's gonna capture your heart's affections because you look at this this morning, especially for you who are struggling, for you who are like, feel like you're beat down, for you who feel like you're just not worth anything to God because, man, you're trying, but you're just not getting anywhere. This is what you hear and you go, you mean it's grace? You mean Jesus can still accept me and still love me and forgive me and I can still be used by God? Yes. And that's what transforms you as you look, as you move out and you go, and you, what do you want to do? You want to tell people about this, Jesus. <laughs> You want to tell people about this wonderful gospel. You've like, you, you got to get in on this. <laughs> You've got to hear this, right? So we take communion to remember him. So as we do, we'll give you a moment here of quiet before we sing uh, one last song so that you can reflect on the value and worth of Jesus and, and anything else that God has brought up to you today. So let me pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be together. Uh, thank you for, for Jesus. Um, it's so easy, so many times for me to open the Bible and just see things I need to do, things I need to fix, things I need to do better. And that's so true. I mean, there's, there definitely is a mirror there uh, as I see myself. But God, if I just stop there and all I see is myself and lacking uh, in the things that you want or need or, or see in me, God, I, I, I'll never match up. But as I look closer and deeper into the mirror, I see you. And it's you that transforms us. It's your work for us that we constantly need to stay tethered to, God. We can't, we can't break off from that. We can't pull up anchor and decide to go deeper into the ocean of Christianity as if it's somehow better. God, it's good right here. And this is where we're transformed. This is where we become the people that you want us to be by focusing on you and what you've done. So guys, we go to communion. Show us how we've lacked in faith. Show, help us to understand the grace and forgiveness that you've given through Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.